0: The Buddha was once asked by one of his students, said, would it be true to say that a part of our practice is for the development of love and compassion? And he answered and he said, no, it wouldn't be true to say this. It would be true to say that the whole of our practice is for the development of love and compassion. If you ever kind of delve into the body of ancient Buddhist stories that are very central to this tradition of practice, what you meet and find over and over again is this invitation, this encouragement, this call to discover the depths of compassion that is possible each of us. When you read many of the stories, what you encounter of course, that really part of this this tradition, this lineage is of course the stories of the bodhisattvas. Those who dedicate their lives, dedicate themselves to the end of suffering. And there's all of these endless very, very grand very romantic stories of of great courage and boundless generosity and boundless love you know you read the stories of the the bodhisattva who cuts off their arm to feed a hungry dog you know and the one who lays down their life so that somebody else can breathe and you know they're pretty big stories you know you think wow he's bodhisattva what is really of course at the heart of these stories and with all stories one takes them with a certain pinch of salt probably is really the significance the value that is given to the development of compassion and the stories tell this kind of journey through time and in countless different ways and places they kind of bear witness or testimony to this enduring spirit of the willingness, the dedication to relieve suffering without conditions. And of course, one of the major points, one of the major purposes of these stories is to invite each one of us to reflect really on how great on how encompassing our own hearts can be invite us to reflect on what depth of wisdom of balance of patience of forgiveness we can find in our own hearts and minds now these stories of course not only play a role in the buddhist tradition but in every great spiritual tradition has its stories of its saints and its 30 who essentially teach by example, teach by example. They teach the power of compassion by how they live their lives, by how they relate to other people. In reading, sometimes in reading and reflecting on these stories, it is important to remember that what they don't do is they don't invite us to be lost in a kind of blind admiration um, or envy, but they invite us to look at our own story and encourage us to see that both the capacity to create suffering, to be a cause of suffering, and the capacity to ease suffering, live side by side within us. Both of those capacities are part of our human story, part of our human heritage. Alongside the capacity we have for awareness, for honesty, for reflection, that actually those qualities are a great gift of freedom. They give us the freedom to really reflect upon what kind of pathway we choose to follow in our life and what kind of pathway we choose to follow in the moment. That capacity for awareness and honesty, you know, it it distinguishes us a little bit in this life in that, we're not actually driven by blind instinct or by blind reaction. And we, we do probably appreciate that, that the capacity for self-awareness can sometimes seem like a blessing, and sometimes it seems like a curse. You know, there's that wonderful line Joseph Goldstein once said, he Why is self-knowledge always bad news? It's not always bad news, but we see sometimes our capacity for self-awareness invites honesty. Because it illuminates, our capacity for awareness illuminates the forces and the powers that really move us in our our lives, that really move us to speak the way that we do, to act the way that we do, to make the choices that we make sometimes that quality of awareness really mirrors very powerful forces of fear and anger and self-protectiveness and greed. And sometimes that capacity for awareness also mirrors the equally powerful energies and capacities and qualities of forgiveness, of kindness, of sensitivity, of compassion. More and more I see, you know, I see in our life, I see in my life that we're actually always being ultimately asked to make a kind of journey of this life, to make a kind of pilgrimage of our lives. We're always being asked to really explore how we want to live, what we dedicate ourselves to. What brings about the end of suffering, not just for ourselves, but what directly contributes to the end of sorrow everywhere? Now, Milarepa, who was a great Tibetan saint, you know, once said, you know, accustomed long to contemplating compassion, I have quite forgotten the difference between self and other. In that journey of reflection, we're not actually asked to go out and do very heroic deeds. We're not asked to lay down our lives for others or to change the world. What we are more asked to do is to look very clearly at how we can change our world of this moment, how we hold ourselves, how we hold this moment to be aware of what kind of thoughts, what kind of feelings run through us and how those thoughts and feelings that run through us, the rippling effect that they have, our words come from them, our actions come from from them, the way that we relate to the person beside us, the way that we relate to ourselves comes from the kind of thoughts and feelings that are ever running through us. And more and more as we practice, as we're aware, we do really appreciate that we're not helpless. We're not entirely a victim of our history, our stories, our fears, because awareness actually brings that gift of possibility, of being able to follow pathways, of being able to make wise choices, and we're asked to look at what kind of pathway we follow, what gives meaning to our lives, what gives depth to our lives, what gives a sense of, of motivation, of inspiration to the fabric of our lives. And that you know, that kind of reflection, that kind of honesty inwardly, I often feel this is actually really heroic. That it really does take quite some immense courage to turn towards conflict, to turn towards suffering, to, to turn towards pain, that it takes incredible amount of dedication and steadfastness of heart to turn our attention directly towards people that we struggle with, or even to be willing to look at sometimes those, those quite dark places in our own hearts and minds where anger and resentment and rage and jealousy can live. It does take, I feel, an immense amount of courage to turn our attention, <coughs> to open our hearts in a very real way to the, the countless people in our world who, who suffer very, very much a daily diet of of violence, or terror or of terror, of rage, or alienation. There's a lot of other things we could do with our time. There's a lot of other things we could do with our attention. There's a lot of other ways of responding, you know, of avoidance, of fantasy, of distractedness, of self-indulgence. But even these responses, because sometimes we have them, sometimes we want to avoid the difficult, sometimes we follow the pathways of of fantasy, but even these responses don't ask for blame, they also ask for compassion, because they are part of the tapestry of furrow and pain. You know, recently, a few weeks ago, I came across this really remarkable book called Whispered Prayers. And this is a, a book in which, through stories and pictures, the lives of about 30 Tibetan refugees are told. Well, actually, they tell their own stories in this book. And this book is made up of the stories of you know, quite a variety of people, ordinary people, young people, old people, grandmothers, grandfathers, monks, nuns, children, who essentially, you know, just in a couple of paragraphs, really very short, very briefly, speak about the last few years of their lives. And often about what they speak about is a kind of inhuman kind of, pain and atrocity they'd been through, of imprisonment, of torture, of, of forced enforced sterilization, of loss of their families, their children, their homes. And one of the reasons, one of the things that really I found incredibly moving about this book was a few of the themes that really stood out. One of the course, that the common theme, the shared theme was the depths of pain and sorrow they had all been through and none of these people were particularly exceptional people and i don't know what an exceptional person quite looks like but they weren't particularly exceptional people yet they had all been through this kind of journey this this passage of almost unendurable Pain and loss, and the destruction of their bodies and their lives and their homes. The other piece that really stood out was how much their hearts were intact. That some, so they were relating their stories. They often, you know, were expressing a great deal of grief, a great deal of sadness. You know, were sometimes distraught. But what? But with a certain, they didn't see the kind of dignity compassion or the remarkable generosity they had as being in any way unusual or exceptional. That they spoke of their kind of fortitude and, and their commitment as just as if there was no other choice. That this was just their path, this was just their faith, almost as if there wasn't any other way of responding. What did stand out was the remarkable absence of blame or anger or rage or the desire for retaliation. One of the nuns, if I could read you, one of the nuns in this book, this was her story. She told of being arrested and imprisoned for putting off a free Tibet poster. And she said that during the interrogations that took place twice a week, I was beaten and tortured. To stay alive, I meditated on peace and nonviolence every possible moment I could. I tried my hardest to pray for peace for all humankind. Again and again I meditated in my prayers. I didn't feel particularly sad or angry. If the police noticed my lips moving, they told me to stop or I would be punished further. So I whispered my prayers, barely moving my lips at all. A group of us celebrated the Dalai Lama's birthday in prison by singing traditional Tibetan songs. As punishment, they put me in an ice house and removed my clothing for three days. Then the beatings resumed and they went on and on for weeks. My prayers for peace and nonviolence also went on and on with even greater intensity. She was 17. She is 17. What, was often the, what often these people spoke about was not a kind of blind compassion, not a kind of blind forgiveness, but that understanding that jailers too acted out of ignorance, were a prisoner of their own ignorance. So, of course, in our lives, we are very unlikely to find ourselves in situations of such anguish or deprivation. But in our lives, of course, we will all face many moments, countless moments, when we are presented with the choice of either following the pathway of anger or greed or rage or hatred, or the path of generosity and compassion. I never think it's very helpful to think of compassion as a future destination or as an ideal but as a present about how we are in this moment about what we cultivate in this moment what path we follow this moment sometimes it's said that if you want to know your past you should look at your mind now it's also said that if you want to know your future you can look at your mind now this practice we're doing here, this cultivation of compassion, is actually a practice of caring for this mind and heart. Caring about how it is now. Caring about the thoughts, caring about the feelings, caring about the responses, caring about the choices we are making. Caring through mindfulness, through awareness. We see in that compassion doesn't arise because we want it to arise. We see that compassion is not something mechanical or manufactured. But we see that we can cultivate awareness and the possibility of compassion arising. And this is actually very much, of course, a very personal, a very inner journey that no one can do for us. No one can investigate our own inner world for us. You know, we don't have psychic spies here who kind of, into anybody else's mind and heart and know what they do. We're the only ones who know what we do on a cushion. We're actually the only ones who know what we do in our lives. We are the only ones who can actually inwardly cultivate that path of investigation and reflection and cultivate a sense of the worth, the actual worth, the actual value of compassion. And we do that by this really simple willingness to attend very closely to the rhythm of our own heart and mind, acknowledging, and this is so important, we begin to see this, acknowledging the way in which our heart and mind is the forerunner, the forerunner Mm -hmm. of how we engage with the world, how we engage with other people, how we engage with ourselves. The compassion we make room for, it's not just an inner feeling, but it is actually an engagement. The willingness to receive the world, to interact with responsibility, with care, with sensitivity, to relieve suffering, to understand conflict. More and more, I feel, you know, I've come to appreciate that that mindfulness really is a path in which everything matters, in which nothing is irrelevant, and nothing is unimportant. There is no word, no action, no choice that is unimportant. Because with each of these, of course, we make an impact. We make an impact upon the quality of our own heart and mind. We make an impact upon the world of others. And we finally, I think, do come to understand in this reflection that to care for ourselves is to care for others. That to care for the happiness and the well-being of others is to care for ourselves. Sometimes from the outside, when we look at meditation, you know, it can look like a very kind of self-absorbed almost a self-indulgent affair you know when we look at meditation it looks like a pathway you know that's mostly interested in you know our meeting understanding freeing ourselves from our inner demons and shadows and conflicts it it looks like a pathway that's involved mostly with us finding the ways to you know, a greater sense of personal happiness and well-being. You know, and to some extent, this is true. To some extent, this is true. Meditation is actually a very personal affair. But then we look at it a little bit more widely, and we look at really what it is that we meet in our inner world, What what it is that we meet when we explore inwardly. certainly we meet the causes of suffering in our inner world. And certainly we begin to discover the ways to the end of suffering. Certainly we meet the ways that we can be lost, really lost sometimes in resentment or anger or judgment or indifference or alienation. And we see very clearly the result is pain. I mean, have you ever come out of a really decent bout of, you know, self-judgment and self-hatred and, and rage inwardly, feeling a lot happier and lighter and more peaceful? Mostly not. You know, mostly we begin to see this causes suffering. It's tight. It's contracted. It's lacking space. We see it doesn't work in That's so interesting. That also in this inner expression, we see what doesn't work to end suffering. I mean, we could sit all day and chat at ourselves, couldn't we? Or we could sit all day and blame ourselves. Or we could sit all day and condemn ourselves for our imperfections and shortcomings. And I doubt that anything would change at all. You know, we begin to see what doesn't work. We also begin to understand, actually, what does work. We begin to understand what does bring about the end of suffering. We begin to perhaps have some faith and some trust in the power, the blessing, of forgiveness, of patience, of acceptance, of generosity. We learn these lessons in our inner world. And actually, what we see is in that inner world, we are really meeting all worlds. In exploring our minds and hearts, we are also exploring very much all minds and hearts. I mean, I know sometimes in meditation, you know, we can feel embarrassed by our own minds. You know, and sometimes there can come the feeling, you know, that, oh, you know, we definitely have a much worse mind than anybody else. You know, we've got a much more kind of judgmental, condemning, you know, blaming, angry, uptight, comparing mind than anybody else could possibly have. We sometimes feel meeting ourselves that this mind certainly is more shameful than anybody else's mind. I sometimes have this, this image, and you know, imagine what it'd be like if somebody would volunteer to allow their mind to be transmitted through a PA system in the meditation room, you know. What that would be like, you know, if we could ever find a volunteer for that. You know, mostly the reluctance would be because we would think, oh no, my mind is far too embarrassing to make public. But actually the truth is that if we were to do that, most everybody else in the room would sit there nodding and say, oh yeah, I know that one. I know that one. I've been there. Oh yeah, I know just what that feels like. Yet the truth is that even, you know, nobody else can actually learn the lessons we need for us. Nobody else can figure out what works for us. And we can't always learn their lessons. But what we do begin to learn in with me, I think, is about healing, about letting go, about the power of listening, about how not to be a cause of suffering. And we come to trust and have faith in those lessons that we learn through listening inwardly. There's a few lines by the Buddha, the Buddha said, the thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit and habit hardens into character. So what the thought and its ways with care, and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. As we sit with ourselves and listen to ourselves, we can't actually help but appreciate the power of our thoughts. Sometimes you see the way that our thoughts impact on our bodies. You know, you suddenly notice in a sitting, you're sitting there with your fist clenched and your teeth gritted, you know, brow frowning, you know, on high alert. And you look at the thoughts and you see how your body is responding. Sometimes we really begin to appreciate how the power of our thoughts, you know, they just kind of seem to then fly out in the form of our words that we never actually ever wanted to speak or fly out in our actions. Sometimes we appreciate just the very energetic power of our thoughts. You know, sometimes we can have a, a kind of a storyline inwardly that that's very resentful, or very lustful, or very greedy, or very aversive. And the energetic power of those thoughts, we can sense how that's impacting in, in how we place ourselves in the entire universe. We listen to ourselves, and more and more we begin perhaps to see that the causes of joy and the causes of sorrow really do find their beginnings in our heart and mind. And out of compassion, out of compassion, we care for the thoughts and care for where they come from. We start to discern what does lead to sorrow and what leads to healing and love. And thoughts are very interesting. You know, in the Buddhist tradition, there's only one word for heart and mind. You know, so when we speak about thought we're also speaking about the world, the whole world of the interwoven tapestry of feeling and emotion and thought. And we begin to see there's so many different tones to our thought, ranging, you know, this this kind of schizophrenic range from, you know, being so angry and impatient and and, and and kind of crazed in one moment to being so patient, so accepting, so forgiving in another. And we also see that there's some journeys we make in our thoughts over and Mm -hmm. over again, and that they are habits. They are habits. But sometimes we have very powerful habits, almost like kind of grooves that have become well-worn in our minds and hearts because of the number of times we've walked there. You know, for one person, it is a habit of comparison. For another, it's a habit of self-judgment or judgment of others. For another person, it's it's a habit of feeling deprived, of never being enough, never having enough. For another person, it might be a habit of negativity or aversion. And it becomes clear that some of these habits, some of these grooves, They don't lead to freedom. And sometimes, actually, we have learned everything we're going to learn there. Like there's nothing more to learn, no matter how much we squeeze them for insight. Nothing more is coming. We have learned what we need to learn. They have hardened more into character. And some of them are painful. And sometimes when we see those habits, It's very tempting to blame. It's very tempting to blame. It's very tempting to say, well, I know where I got this from. You know, I know whose fault this is. You know, we can see the lineage. Or we blame ourselves. It's my fault. I'm like this. It's my fault my mind works like this. I think that sometimes blame can feel like a way out of helplessness. You know, sometimes when we meet pain when we, meet, when we meet her, you know, we can feel very, very helpless, very powerless, not, not know how to, how to meet it well. And so blame, I think, often feels like, like a kind of energy that takes us out of helplessness. But we also see that blame takes us a step away from connection. And blame probably takes us a step away from compassion and wise response. You know, we can be so busy in that story of it's your fault, it's my fault. We don't see that in the busyness of all that blame, what we don't see is this is suffering. This is just suffering. You know, this anger is suffering. This greed is suffering. This resentment is suffering. Sometimes it's a great relief and a great liberation to begin to learn how to let go of blame. Because sometimes that letting go of blame is also a kind of releasing of a lot of busyness. And the releasing of a lot of that busyness really enables us to hold, to meet, to embrace the suffering that is just is. And that's the beginning of compassion. I think anger without compassion becomes blame. I think anger, sometimes when it's provoked by injustice or or unnecessary suffering, that when it's with compassion, it becomes wise action. One of the major parts of developing both wisdom and compassion is to understand the way, very deeply to understand the way in which all things arise because of conditions. You know, last year, uh, one of the times when I went to the States, I'd been staying in a hotel, and the hotel called for a taxi to come and pick me up in the morning. So I was waiting outside the door and this taxi that was ordered. Julie came, and the taxi driver got out and went over to pick up my suitcase. And, and when he was making his way over to pick up my suitcase, suddenly this other taxi cab came screaming, and screeching in front of my taxi cab. And the driver jumped out. And one of these taxi drivers was a white guy, and the other taxi driver was was black. He was an African-American. And immediately, immediately, well, this taxi driver that had come screeching off, immediately he jumped out and he says, that's my fare. I was here first. And within, within seconds, this had escalated first into a little pushing and shoving, and then both seemed to have access to this huge vocabulary of racist language that they were flinging around at each other. Pretty soon, they were wrestling and rolling on the ground and beating each other up with my suitcase (laughs) in the middle. And me, kind of standing there on the edge, wondering how on earth this had all happened. And, you know, I mean, finally, you know, the police came and... (laughs) sorry. the police came and pulled these two guys apart. And (laughs) it was such, it was such suffering. The whole thing was such suffering, you know, the language they were using towards each other, the anger, the kind of, the, the tension, the struggle. And it was like, who was to blame? I mean, where did the prejudice begin? You know, what did each one of them learn in their lives at the knee of their parents, the knee of their grandparents? You know what? Do, what have they? Where do they come from in terms of the hardship of their lives, the need to make a living, and yet out of that, this incredible rage, this incredible rage. But who was to blame? You know, sometimes I think we look at our own lives and our own stories and our own lineages, our own family lineages, and we all have them. You know, where does anger begin? You know, where where does where does uh you know ambitiousness begin where does greed begin you know as i mentioned in one of my groups today you know a practice for me over the years has been learning to to uh what's the right word work with <laughs> embrace impatience. you know I, my, my kind of personality type is one of these you know you see something he's doing well you just kind of do it you know um so you know and there's a, this sort of element of impatience you know that you know why is somebody else waiting to get something done you know if somebody mentions the word process to me i have an aversion attack you know mm-hmm. i just think well just you know let's just do it you know so i've learned over the years you know more and more i've learned over the years to actually sense impatience as my teacher and i know the lineage i mean my father is the most impatient person you can ever imagine you know from everything I've heard about his father, he was the most, even more impatient. And where was the beginning of this family lineage of impatience? And where does it stop? Where does it stop? I mean, where, where, are the, where is the point where we kind of live somebody else's story? Where we kind of accept that we have, uh, you know, get into that position where we say, oh, there's no other way of being. You know, where's the point where we see how much that might be suffering that might be suffering you know so sometimes i think we can begin to start or begin to kind of track our own lineages and begin to welcome them as our teachers as our practice it is conditioned it's the conditions. you know past experience history views culture fear conditioning All of these blend together to provide the conditions for the arising of anger, the arising of fear, the arising of impatience. Who is to blame? Understanding that all things arise from conditions, of course, doesn't then justify a kind of disassociation or irresponsibility, saying, oh, it's not my fault, (laughs) you know. I just got landed with this you know there's nothing i can do about it because compassion asks us to be responsive to be engaged to be interested to understand that we have the capacity for reflection and investigation the capacity to let go the capacity for understanding And all of these actually are part of the fabric of changing the conditions of the mind and heart. Everything we do in meditation practice essentially is cultivating the conditions inwardly that give rise to love, that give rise to compassion, that give rise to generosity. It's not that we make ourselves be compassionate. And it's certainly not helpful to blame ourselves when we don't feel compassionate. But what we can do, because that can just be another form of self-hatred, what we can do is incline the mind, incline the heart, towards compassion by holding much more the unshakable intention to see into the root of suffering. In this sense, we really feel really understand that compassion is not just some kind of passive state it's actually a way of engaging with the moment it, it, it's, a, it's a way of, of conscious, intentional engagement with the moment what are the conditions inwardly to see compassion as a moment to moment engagement is interesting then it's not like some kind of prize or reward that we we accidentally run into if we're lucky. Instead, we think, we reflect on what it means to intentionally incline the mind and heart towards understanding suffering in the moments that we meet suffering. And they are countless. Where is compassion needed? One place compassion needed is in the world of the body. The world of the body. Such a fragile body is this body. The body, our body, the bodies of others. This body, in the way that it experiences pain, the way sometimes that it ages, the way sometimes it's sick, the way sometimes it breaks down, you know, my definition of aging is that the periods of time when everything works well, all at the same moment, get shorter and shorter. Mm-hmm. You know, they just get shorter and shorter. You just get moments when you say, everything's working well, amazing. You know, recently I was at the dentist, you know, going into a new kind of round of teeth capping, you know, and I said to my dentist, you know, why is it that my teeth decide they want to liberate themselves from my mouth? You know, and he says, it's a design fault. He says, your teeth think you should be dead. (laughs) He goes, it's very reassuring, you know, it's very reassuring thought. But this body doesn't it, it goes through stuff, doesn't it, all the time? And what happens when our bodies go through things? For many people, they discover when their bodies break down, when there is illness, when there is ill health, when they meet frailty in their body, how often those become kind of turning points when the mind sinks into depression, into frustration, into fear, into helplessness. How often when our bodies break down, and our bodies do break down, how often that gives rise you know, to that whole kind of impetus, that compelling feeling of, you know, how do I fix this? You know, how do I make it go away? How do I get rid of it? And sometimes we can, of course. Sometimes there are things our bodies go through and they come back and sometimes we can't. And those are amazing places when our bodies are just not coming back the way they used to come back. And in those times, rather than getting stuck in those places of aversion and resistance and fear, we are actually asked to dive much more deeply within ourselves. And to find the patience and the compassion the balance to hold this body as it is to have compassion for this body to know where we layer extra layers of suffering upon pain the buddha once said that if you want to know what compassion is Look into the eyes of a mother as she cradles her ill and fevered child. And sometimes that's the kind of compassion we're we'll asked to find for our body. Sometimes it's easier for us to find compassion for our body or for the bodies of others than it is to find compassion for the mind. There are times when we get really lost in confusion or lost in storms of rage or judgment or greed. Times when we sometimes meet other people's minds where they can be maybe really unskillful or or prejudiced or intolerant or angry. And these are the times when it's really challenging to find compassion. Sometimes when it's in relationship to the mind, not being so well. Instead of compassion, we're much more prone to be thinking, I should know better. You know, I, my mind should be different. This should not be happening in my mind. And when we meet other people's minds, it's even easier to think, you should know better this shouldn't be happening in your mind it is very easy to blame when our minds seem to really be in those whirlwinds again often our response is not so much compassion for the suffering of being lost in that way often our response more is is much more strategic you know how am I going to fix it, how am I going to improve myself, how am I going to fix somebody else's mind, you know? How am I, uh, the judgments, the feeling that it's somehow a weakness to have a mind that's not actually working all that well in the moment, that you're somehow to blame, that it's a kind of fault, you know, that, that you should be able just to get a grip, you know, get a grip, be in control, you know? I mean, we, we obviously, we can't control what happens in our bodies. I mean, we've got this kind of much bigger investment sometimes in our minds and how they should be. Sometimes we find it much more, uh, much more unforgivable. You know, sometimes we think the body, our pain, body pain is our fault. I mean, that's one thing. But we really give ourselves a hard time over the mind. Like, this is unforgivable that so my mind has done this. We think we should be able to control it. I mean, did you ever get up in the morning and say, oh, this looks like a really good day to be depressed, you know? Oh, a fantastic day for raging at my partner, you know, or being impatient. Do we really think when we meet somebody else who's really kind of off the wall in some way that they got up that morning saying, oh, yeah, I'm just going to go out today, you know, and and really just shout at the world and, and broadcast my intolerance and prejudice? I doubt it. The conditions are there. The conditions lead to suffering. And it is suffering. I mean, sometimes in relationships in the mind, we have to find very, dive very, very deeply, indeed, inwardly, to find the forgiveness and the tolerance and the acceptance and the compassion for this mind, for this mind that also suffers. We might also say, if you want to know what compassion is, look into the eyes of a mother who cradles the sick and fevered mind of her child. And what would it be like to cradle our own sick and fevered mind at times? Compassion is asked for in relationship to this body and mind. Compassion is asked for because sometimes change brings suffering. The suffering of change the suffering that comes with the separation from sensitivity, from connectedness. This too is painful. Separation is painful. And we're asked to find a boundless warmth and care to know we're not always in control of what changes. Being not in control doesn't mean being out of control. We can be present. We can stay connected. We can turn away from suffering, or we can turn towards. The suffering we meet in our world, of course, this is the suffering we meet in all worlds the injustice, the oppression, the pain, the violence. You know, there's a wonderful Tibetan prayer that says, "Grant that I may be given appropriate difficulties so that my practice of wisdom can be awakened." Are my path of compassion truly fulfilled. To think of holding all suffering in the compassionate heart is far too big. You know, to think of ending all suffering is way too big. But what about just meeting the suffering of this moment? The pain we meet in this moment, in the confusing experience? What about just meeting that person who might seem so insensitive? What about just meeting that image we see on the TV or the siren in the distance? These are the places we're actually asked to meet and to find the encompassing heart. One moment at a time. And the more we discover that the more that we incline our heart and mind towards compassion, the more it grows. And every time we incline our heart and mind towards compassion, we are learning to let go. We're learning to let go of impatience, learning to let go of blame. We are learning to be still and to be present. We learn about forgiveness. We learn about empathy, we learn about listening, and we learn about letting go. And these are all parts of compassion. I'd like to end, if I may, with a poem. It's called Kindness. It says, before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, Travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you. How he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. Wake up with sorrow. Speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it's only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread, only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it's you, it's I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. we have just a couple of moments quietly. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.